Thanks. I can see there's already an early evaluation of my performance going on here. <laughs> Great. Well, thank you for coming out tonight. It's, it's wonderful to be here in Villanova for many reasons. Uh, one of the reasons which is that my, uh, my own personal human migration to this world uh, started only 12 miles from here at Stuart Mercy Hospital where I was born. And I was born into a wonderful family and I happen to have some uh, family extended family members here today. And my sister's also a graduate of Villanova University, so this is a place very close to my heart and to my history. And so it's, it's wonderful to be here among many, uh, many distinguished guests. Uh, one of whom I really want to say hello is my godmother, Amy Craig, who is right here. And uh, I, uh, so Mimi uh, and my cousin Jenner uh, helped rescue me from the claws of death when I uh, jumped out of a station wagon when I was only an infant. So if there's something kind of cracked up about my presentation today, uh, feel free to contact them. They can explain some of the details. But my godfather is no longer with us, and his name was Bill Broody. And I want to tell you a little bit of a story about Bill Broody. Bill Broody was a great man, and he lived in Ashland, Pennsylvania. And when he passed away about five years ago, the family went back to the old sod where they grew up, and we uh, laid him into the ground, and we paid our last respects. And after we said our final prayers and said goodbye to Bill Broody, I went home. And actually, at the time, I was visiting my parents here in Bluebell. And when I opened up the email, there was a very interesting one that caught my attention immediately. And it just said on the email line, a note from Bill Broody. And my first reaction was, wow, he made it. You know, uh, it's like, uh, took him a little while to get connected, but, uh, you know, he's wireless now. So, uh, so it turned out that it was somebody who literally had gone out to Google. His name was Bill Broody, and he just looked up what was there out there in the Broody name. And he said, look, I saw some of the work you're doing. And he says, if you're ever out in this area, California, he says, come look me up. So I said, I'm coming out to the Bay Area in a couple weeks. So I said, why don't you come over to our community's house for dinner? So you can imagine this in a family situation or a community situation. I arrived late in the afternoon, and they knew I was coming, and so they said, will you be here for dinner? And I said, yes. Uh, as a matter of fact, I met somebody on the internet, and I invited him over for dinner as well. <laughs> well, there's this, just this deep silence. They're like, wait a minute. You don't even know this guy? He says his name is Bill Broody, and you just invited him over? And I said, yeah, he's probably fine. Well, Bill and I started uh, talking. A little guarded. The community was a little guarded at first. And, but uh, eventually, Bill says, you know, I used to live out east. And he says, I was an NBC News reporter for the White House for NBC News Radio. And we're like, oh, wow, we used to listen to you on, on radio. We always wondered whether you were connected. He said, yeah, now I'm out on the West Coast. And he said, you know, right now I've been working in some video productions. And I said, wow, it's funny. That we're beginning to do that, too. So one thing led to another. And he came back east, got together with my Aunt Florence here. And they began to actually connect the family tree. And it turned out that we were related to two brothers who came over into the United States as immigrants through Canada from Ireland 200 years ago. And something happened. We're not quite sure what it was. It was the beginning of the Fighting Irish, though, is that uh, he did something to really anger the other brother. So the other brother, to get back at him, said, what can I possibly do to make him as angry as possible? And he said, I know what I'll do. He says, I'll become Protestant. So this was the great rift in the family. And so his family went with the Catholic line, and my, or Protestant line, my family went with the Catholic line, and it took 200 years to get the family back together again. 
So they say that Irish Alzheimer's is that you, you, you really forget everything but your grudges. And so uh, it was just one of these things where it just took a while to, to reconnect with family, but eventually we did, and Bill Grudy is actually the one who ended up doing some of these films, including the one Dying to Live. So Bill and I have not only reconnected the story, reconnected the family, but you know, in recent years, in particular this last year, we participated in a study, which was a very interesting study, because some of you may know that National Geographic and IBM actually has a test that you can do, take a sample of your DNA from inside of your cheek, you could send it off to the labs, and actually you could trace back your family's migration history 80,000 years. And this is exactly what this map shows. This shows the paternal history of our of our great-great ancestors that began in the Old Divide Gorge and would have migrated their way uh, up into Asia and then would have arced back into Europe. So 90% of the men who live in northern Italy, southern Spain, and England would have the same genetic markers as Bill Grudy and I. When Bill Grudy did this, it was an exact gen genetic match. So it is actually verifiable proof that we are connected and that we are related. And so it's very interesting to see how migration is in the genes. And this is something that you can do yourselves. For these kits, for about $100, you can actually you know, do this test yourself. Um, and so very fascinating to see how migration is in the genes. But it's also in our spiritual genes, is that we look at the scriptures, we look at Exodus, or excuse me, look at the call of Abraham, which we have here. This is actually the territory where Abraham would have been called in the 12th chapter of Genesis to leave his home country in the land of Ur, and then travel up the Fertile Crescent up the Tigris and Euphrates River, and then arcing back down the Fertile Crescent down into this area, which these are the contemporary boundaries today. This is the area where he would have been migrating. But it's very interesting that at the 12th chapter of Genesis, this begins sort of the, what, what we see is really the beginning of what is identifiable historical situations and contexts. Up until then, it's sort of like a prehistory, but up until then we see that the person of Abraham, the conditions in which the texts are written, uh, really give us a sense of, uh, of a concrete people and situations and culture. But interestingly enough, that the story of the people of God begins on a migration narrative. Leave your country, go to the land I will show you, and believe in the promise. But we see this theme of migration coming through the scripture again in the book of Exodus, in exile, in return, in the incarnation of Jesus, in the journey to Jerusalem, in the death and resurrection of Jesus, in the ascension, in the call of the disciples, and finally, in, the, in really the church's own self-identity as being a pilgrim people, this theme of migration is throughout our spiritual genes. It's kind of part of our intrinsic makeup. Uh, so much so that really, this is kind of where we find ourselves today. I was down in the dead, near the Dead Sea a few years ago, and this is a Bedouin farmer, really in the long ancestry of Abraham, uh, attending to a tourist, presumably from Asia, but he's talking on his cell phone. And uh, it was an interesting kind of moment because I thought here we are with this convergence of globalization, of migration, and we were asking is this progress, is this regress, are we going forward, are we going backward, how do we evaluate this time of change? But whatever, however we do it, migration is just part of the long human story, it's part of our spiritual story, and that's something that I want to talk about today. This is a complex issue, it's a difficult issue, it's a very uh, uh, debated issue today. And I look at this as a theologian, so I'll say off at, the, at the front, this is not about looking at policies of migration, and these are important issues that need to be developed. I'm actually looking at this as a theologian. And one of the questions that I'm asking is, how do you look at theology from a migratory perspective? And so I would say there's three levels. Um, the first level is really what we would say is the pastoral level. And commonly in the documents of the church, it really looks at how those with resources help out those who are on the move. Uh, 
the uh, many uh, parishes, many international organizations, many that are sponsored by the church really dedicate a lot of time and resources and energy into helping those who are migrating, either through direct aid, through legislative advocacy, through looking for employment, that this is part of what the work is about. And so a lot of the documents of the church are written at this level. So it's much more of a, 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 something that goes from this way to this way. But it's only one level. The second level is a spiritual level, which is just the opposite. It's more of a listening posture. It's listening to the stories and the narrative of what's going on inside the hearts and the minds of migrants. What do they think about? What do they feel? What do they suffer with? What do they struggle with? You know, that that's part of the internal journey. If the first part really focuses on the external journey, the second part looks at the internal journey. Uh, where I've been working is primarily on the borders between Mexico and the U.S., but also increasingly between Malta and Libya, between Morocco and Spain, and between Slovakia and Ukraine. And from these areas as well, also between Haiti and the Dominican Republic. And asking the questions, what's happening on the outside, what's happening on the inside? You know, these are kind of uh, questions that uh, I think need to be reflected upon. And as a theologian, that's part of what I'm asking, is, is how does this um, also affect the way we understand who we are as human beings? So how is migration a metaphor of how we understand who we are before God? Now, this is not just a political descriptor. It's not just simply that something that we label people with. But it also helps us understand who we are in this world, and that's part of what I want to get into today. So all of this is really talking about a theology of migration, and, and we we'll want to explore that a little bit tonight. So really, at the end of the day, there's three points that I want to really focus on tonight. The first is really look at the foundational territory. It's really a description of the reality of seeing what's happening today. So that would be to say, who is the migrant? How many people are migrating? And where are they migrating? So really, to even take us a little bit outside of just the US-Mexican border, which we tend to get very locked in on, and see this as a global issue. Secondly, is to look at the conceptual issue, uh, the conceptual territory, and, and particularly the different positions in the migration debate. Uh, people see this in different ways. I want to just give a sort of an outline of how people see this, and then give a way of a, uh, sort of evaluating those different positions. And finally, I want to look at what I would call the theological territory, and that is by uh, looking at uh, spirituality as a migration, and then kind of look at what is this connection between what seems to be a socioeconomic phenomenon and the Christian tradition, and how do we begin to make those connections? So those are the three things that I, I want to look at today. Okay, first is the foundational territory. Uh, is to look at uh, really how do we begin to describe people on the move. There are really four primary ways in which uh, people on the move are described today. And the first is the economic migrant. And these are people who really are, are moving between countries and they're searching for more dignified lives, primarily through work. So if you were to actually go into the detention centers and if you go into the mountains or the canals or the Mexican border, if you were to actually position yourself right at the wall or the fences, and if you were to move beyond some of the sensationalist journalism that, that really polarizes this issue, and you were to ask most people coming across, what are you looking for? 98% of them would say they're just looking for work, that they're making between $1,000 and $1,500 a year, and because of that, that simply there's not enough money to go around to feed their families, to clothe them, to shelter them, to educate them. It pushes them to move. And, and so many of them will send monies back. They'll work in the lowest jobs here in this country. They will go back and, and still send monies back home uh, because of this. So, they're often doing jobs that no one else wants to do, but this is the category broadly considered as who the economic migrants are. And primarily in this country, that's really what we're dealing with. But the next group uh, is a much more vulnerable population, and these are forced migrants and refugees. And these are people who flee a country because of what is technically considered a well-founded fear of persecution because of race, 
religion, nationality, social membership, or political opinion. So if you get apprehended at the border and if you say refugee, you will be processed very differently than if you're an economic migrant. The laws are such that if you're an economic migrant crossing borders, you have no legal right to be here. If you're a refugee, you're put through a process. And these, this legislation came up out of the United Nations following World War II in the wake of the Holocaust when it really did dawn on the human community that simply this was a moral failure, that people fleeing dangerous dictatorships where their life was in jeopardy weren't given a safe haven. So the purpose of asylum seekers and ref forced refugees is really to find a place where they can be protected you know, and not be deported through what is called a non-refoulement, which is basically you can't apprehend someone, send them back to a situation knowing that they'll be killed or tortured there. If you can prove that will happen, you can fall into this category. Very few get it, but it is a category, and the United States is one of the more generous countries that allows asylum seekers to come in. So technically, the forced migrants or refugees are more vulnerable, but they have more access to legal protections. Currently, under the immigration system, the economic migrant has no protections and, and, and yet are vulnerable in a different kind of way. The next group are internally displaced people, and these are people who have been forcibly uprooted from their home, but are still within the borders of their own country. Sometimes they're like refugees within their home country, like Colombia. Between two and five million people are uprooted because of wars between military groups and paramilitary groups and some of the conflicts of the drug trade, and they literally are terrorized, and they, but they have not crossed international borders. Others are in China, where they're moving from rural areas to urban areas looking for work. Uh, there's more people in China that are internally displaced than the rest of the world combined. The next group are victims of human trafficking, and these are people who've been lured into migrating by false promises of work, but they end up being labor or sex slaves. Now, this is the darkest chapter within the migration story. Often, traffickers will prey on the weakness and vulnerability of migrants, and they end up saying that, you know, we have a job for the United States, we will give you an education when you get there, and then they find themselves trapped in brothels. Some of them having to have sex up to 25 times a day, if you can imagine. So this is really, they're increasing, there's, there is some legislation, the State Department is doing some very good work on this, and they are starting to distinguish a little bit migrant flows from people who are victims of human trafficking. So these are four broad categories that distinguish a little bit, and these are not just labels that scholars come up with in their, in their spare time just to keep their employed. But they, they are ways of distinguishing situations with people, and the, the practical consequences are that there are legal determinants that, that uh, fall out from these definitions. Now, as, as we look into this, really, the number of migrants worldwide, there are more migrants than ever before in history. So as we said, this is something that's been going on since the beginning of time. But right now, what we're seeing is we have more migrants than ever before. Uh, there's about 212 million migrants in the world. And that's Roughly speaking, about one out of every 35 people. These are very conservative estimates. If you were to throw internally displaced people into this number, it would go down to about one out of every six. So, but literally one out of every 35 people in the world is a migrant, which is about the population of Brazil, which is the fifth largest population on the planet. Now, of those, this is an interesting statistic, uh, set of statistics. And I, I will say this first part does have a lot of statistics, so bear with me as we kind of labor through this kind of very descriptive part of the beginning here. Um, but you can see this thing that this is primarily a south to north phenomenon, uh, that you can see that the density of migrants here are in the United States and Europe and, and increasingly in Asia. And you can see the percentages of the population. So roughly 12% of our population um, would have uh, an immigrant origin, and uh, Europe about 7 to 8%. And, and increasingly, it's also becoming Asian. Now, why are these statistics important? 
Here's a set of statistics that are very revelatory. 19% of the world lives on less than a dollar a day. 48% of the world lives on less than $2 a day. 75% of the world lives on less than $10 a day. 95% of the world lives on less than $50 a day. The top 1% of the world has as much as the poorest 57% of the world. And the three richest people in the world have as much as the poorest 48 nations. Right? Now, those statistics really help us frame this very differently when we see that migration is not a problem in itself, but it's a symptom of deeper imbalances which push people to migrate. So, as we'll get into in a bit, the solution to building bigger walls and putting more border patrol agents not only isn't working, but it fails to get at the deeper roots of what causes this. And so, really, without looking at issues of human insecurity, we will never have true national security. And so this is why this issue really needs to be reframed primarily as an issue looking at the roots of migration rather than just seeing it as a problem or seeing migrants as the problem. Really, that doesn't in any way begin to address the issue and it doesn't in any way begin to resolve it. So there are people migrating still internally within these other continents, but, but the majority are going to where the resources are and obviously the density of resources are where we are. We're in a very privileged position, we're in the top 1%. It's not, that's not a matter of just making us feel guilty about that, that doesn't really get us anywhere, but it does awaken us to a sense of responsibility, particularly to the common good and issues of what we would call distributed justice and social justice. Now, as we go further into this, that one of the most vulnerable parts of this population of migrants are the irregular migrants. So these are people crossing borders in clandestine ways because they have no official ways of getting across. Maybe they can't afford a passport. Maybe because they won't be allowed to come even if they apply. But those who cross borders without papers number somewhere between 30 and 40 million worldwide. And about 2.5 to 4 million people cross borders each year without papers. About 5 million of those are in Europe, about 10% of the population. And in the, Europe and the United States, about a half a million people, somewhere between 350 and 500,000, cross, cross the borders each year without papers. And in the United States, there's somewhere between 10 and 12 million people who do not have documents. 50% uh, of those come from Mexico, another 25% come from other Latin American countries, the remainder come from other parts of the world. So in the United States, migration is primarily economic and primarily Latino. It's a different situation in Europe. Much more of an Islamic migration coming into the, what is traditionally Christian Europe. And so it creates another set of issues, not just racial, ethnic conflict, but also religious conflict as well. And this has happened in a very short period of time. All this is related to economic globalization and the changes of transportation, communication, and, and the ability to access this. So, so uh, but the most vulnerable part uh, really are those who are coming across borders without papers. And that is a particular concern to, uh, to the church and its mission. Now, this is one border here where I've been doing work at the Ukrainian-Slovakian border. This is actually from the Ukrainian side. If you look through that port of entry there, you can see the beginning of what is known as Fortress Europe. Uh, increasingly, it's interesting, the last century we spent a good part of it breaking up kind of the countries of Europe, but now it's kind of being reconstituted. Uh, re um, uh, and, and so it's raised questions about border security. And uh, so if you're coming up out of Africa or parts of Asia, this is the area that you want to get into. You want to cross these borders. And so this is the Border Patrol. I've been working with the Border Patrol both in the United States and in Europe, uh, trying to understand the situation better. So you can see on the right is the Ukrainian border. On the left is the Slovakian border. These are some of the vehicles that we use to patrol the border. Here they are looking for any signs of any activity of people coming across. 
Um, but if you get caught, this is where you'd end up, on the right, in these detention facilities. Uh, this is primarily for refugees, and on the left you can see uh, here is the, uh, the, the kind of marker for the Slovakian border. So, you know, that's, um, that's kind of one of the major hotspots. Uh, certainly there are a few parts of Europe where this is really happening, particularly between the African continent and Spain. This is really a major, major area, and uh, this is kind of uh, something that I want to explain in a few moments. But, uh, so this is really primarily uh, laying out the landscape. This is laying out sort of what the geography is uh, of migration, what some of the foundational territory. Uh, before we begin to reflect theologically out of this reality, um, really what's the starting point? So the starting point here is just the reality of, of migration. Now, the next part though, I, what I want to get into a bit more is whether it's European border, whether it's United States border, whether it's the history uh, of migration, there are certain common patterns that emerge about how people think about migrants. Now, let me just tell two stories about, about this, and two stories working with the Border Patrol. Um, one happened when uh, I was uh, doing filming for uh, this, or one of the films, Dying to Live, and, and I can remember most of my appointments were official Border Patrol kind of, uh, you know, um, appointments that I had with them. And sometimes I'd be out in the field and I'd discover something and I would just kind of come up to Border Patrol agent. This is the southern part of California and this is in the fall, the spring of 2002. So we're pretty much post 911. We're about eight months after 911. There's a lot of tension in the air. There was a lot of political embarrassment going on at that time because the pilots who crashed their planes into the World Trade Center, you know, had applied for pilot visas to stay in the United States. These never came through before they crashed their planes in the World Trade Center. They were still pending at the time they crashed their planes. So, uh, but they were approved for these visas in the spring of 2002. Okay, so that some of the flights go receive permission, a verification for these flight visas, even after all this had happened. This was a tremendous embarrassment to the administration. And so this was in the air a week before I had made this trip. And, uh, but there was a lot of very difficult things going on in the church as well, as we know at that time. Well, uh, so it turns out that I was in Southern California and there was, I was right at the wall, right at the fence. There was a Border Patrol truck, there was a Border Patrol agent in the truck. He had these huge arms, lumberjack arms, big, big tattoos all over them. He was like a lion, ready to pounce on prey, just sitting there, you know, waiting. Well, out of nowhere, I come up from behind him. And so I said, would you mind if we do a little filming in this area? And he was completely taken aback and he goes, who the hell are you? said in a very condescending way. So he says, I'm a priest, I teach at Notre Dame, and so on. And then he looked at me and goes, oh, you're a priest, huh? He said, well, you're having a field day in the news these days. Well, I didn't even flinch. And I looked at him and I said, well, you know, you're not doing so bad either. I, I said, uh, you just granted visas to the two terrorists who slammed their plane into the World Trade Center. And I said, if you want me to begin with a few in your organization, I'd be happy to begin. Well, I couldn't even believe I said that. I, I just kind of came out of it. And then as soon as it did, it's like I couldn't take it back. And like, he stepped back, and then I stepped back, but we had one question, and it was the same question. And the question was, could we move beyond the stereotypes we have of each other to really enter into a conversation? Or are we gonna stay walled in to our own perspectives? This is a different kind of migration, and I'm gonna get into that in a moment. This is a much more difficult migration than moving across a political barrier. It has a lot to do with spirituality. So we had a nice conversation for 45 minutes, and we didn't always agree. 
but it was important for us to begin to move beyond kind of a fixed position that we might have had. Well, sometime later, I was working down the Arizona border. It got deeper. And I was with this one agent, and I would go out, sometimes in search and rescue patrol, sometimes in their helicopters. In this case, it was a ride-along. This agent has explained to me what he did in a typical day. And he says, you know, sometimes along this border, I'm doing this, that, and the other thing. He says, you know, but one time I was here, we were right at the fence in southern Arizona. And he said, you know, I actually saw a group of migrants coming across, right? 98% working hard for a job. 2% serious criminal activity, cartels, drugs, right? This was one of those. And so he said, you know, I went in pursuit of them, and all of a sudden, they turned around, and this gunfire started raining down on my head. And he said, I hit the deck, and I was scared to death. I thought I was going to die. And he said, it was so traumatic that I actually had to go to counseling. It affected my marriage. And he said, he starts telling me about stuff. I'm like, oh, my God. I never knew this. And I, and I suddenly, like, a perspective was opened up for me that really began to speak to me. And I began to listen and really move beyond sort of this, you're the bad guy sort of no notion. Well, about 45 minutes later, we're driving around another part of the border. And so I said, well, how do you know which vehicles to stop? And he said, well, you know, they're usually weighted a certain way, and he went through some certain descriptors. And then it was like no more than two minutes after I asked the question, I'll never forget this, this van went by, and he goes, oh, and suddenly he had to go from being Border Patrol agent on public relations duty to Border Patrol agent in hot pursuit of the vehicle. Well, he turned around, turned on his lights, and went after this vehicle. And suddenly I remember just seeing this cloud of smoke and these migrants just running out of this van and going everywhere. My reaction was very revelatory. Because my first reaction, I was so much into the mind of this Border Patrol agent. I'm like, oh, I hope they get away. I, I hope he gets them. I'm like, no, I, I hope they get away. You know, and, and suddenly, like, I started getting really confused. And then I, then I started talking to congressional leaders, ho um, school administrators, hospitals. I started talking to the coyote smugglers. I started talking to mostly the migrants. And so I began to say, there are kind of common themes here. As I went over to Europe, saw these themes repeated, and I studied the history of it, I saw repeated. So what I want to do here is map out what I would say are six common positions here on the migration issue. Now, I'm not saying I agree with all these positions, but I think in, to be intellectually fair that you have to understand what the positive piece is of each one of these positions. The first group are the vigilante groups. Um, these are groups that actually are often ranchers at the borders, and they see people coming across these borders, and they're trashing them. And they're leaving behind a lot of garbage. Sometimes they're breaking open sort of some hoses to drink some of the water. Sometimes they're disturbing the livestock. Sometimes they're even threatening. Sometimes there's even kind of issues of uh, criminal activity as well. But what are they trying to do? Uh, they're basically trying to protect personal property along the border to prevent unlawful entry and to fill in gaps for federal enforcement fail. So these are the folks that Lou Dobbs would love to have on the show. And he basically said, look, there's holes in the fence, people are getting through, and if you listen to them, you know, they're, they're basically uh, trying to say something's not working, that there's, there's a civil disorder here that's not right. And that's what they're pointing out. Right? So that's what they're primarily focused on. The next group is the Department of Homeland Security, or Immigration Customs Enforcement. Uh, last night I was in a, in a conversation with the folks from this agency in Washington, and it was very interesting to hear their angle about what they're trying to do. Their job is to enforce policy, to ensure order, to prevent the unlawful entry, especially of foreign invaders who can harm its citizens. So in our extended family, uh, we had four members of, of, of actually my immediate family that were in the World Trade Center when the planes hit. One of my brother priests was actually in one of the planes that went into the trade center from my community. Uh, most of us were directly affected, I'm sure, from this community in many, many ways. We know terrorism is something that needs to be dealt with. 
All right? And so this group is really trying to say, hey, there are serious issues at stake here. We need to distinguish this. I worked with Border Patrol prior to 911, after 911, certainly a very discernible shift in terms of how we frame this issue. Prior was dealing with illegal entry, now it's dealing with terrorism. The problem in the middle is that we're criminalizing people who are only looking for a job, and that's where it really begins to get complicated. But there is a need for policy, there is a need for border control. These are the people that are doing it. The next group are political leaders. Uh, what they're trying to do is to create federal policy, to protect the lives of citizens, and, uh, its, and to manage its resources. So they're saying, look, we can't let in everybody, that we've got to make distinctions, and that if we let in everybody, we'll collapse the common good, and somehow we've got to make choices about who belongs and who doesn't, who's an American and who's not. When my family came here 150 years ago, that the policy then was we, we let in almost everybody, but we make some exceptions, anarchists, people with epilepsies, and so on and so forth. Nowadays, we let in almost nobody, but we make some exceptions. And so very different policies. Our ancestors would not have been uh, probably coming in during that time. And so very different time period, very different policies. Next group are corporations. Uh, what they're trying to do is to hire cheap labor, to maximize profits, and to sell them at the lowest cost. So there are places in Texas, in Arizona, in California, in Washington State, you know, um, and other places along the border where they're literally going to waste because they don't have enough labor. And so there is a labor need. If we want to look at these really critically, that wherever migrants are coming, it's because the labor pool is also drawing them. This is where, you know, uh, we're going to critique this in a moment, but certainly this group uh, really is, is vested in the immigration issue because they need labor and they often want cheap labor. The next group are church leaders. And uh, Cardinal Turkson, uh, earlier from the Pontifical Council of Justice and Peace, really helped us uh, reflect on Catholic social teaching earlier today and, uh, and really brought out that really the primary goal of the church is to proclaim a God of life and, as Paul VI said, to build a civilization of love. That's the mission of the church. And in that sense, that uh, it's really to protect the rights of immigrants who are made in God's image and likeness and to build a civilization of love, as he said. So it's to denounce injustice and to announce the reign of God. And particularly, people are exploited and marginalized to say this is not God's intention for, for humankind. And that, that somehow uh, this effort to fighting on behalf of justice is deeply rooted in who we understand God to be for us and who we're called to respond as disciples. Finally, uh, there are human rights advocates. And what they're trying to do is to protect the rights of immigrants, to protect the exploitation of the vulnerable, and to fight for human dignity. So these are six positions that, you know, that people have. There are different variants and, and varieties of people within these categories. But I would say it's a start of looking at the most positive regard that each group is fighting for. Now, I'm going to just expand out a little bit on each one of these. Um, this group is, is, is uh, first group is going to look primarily at the issue of property rights. Uh, basically saying that, look, people are crossing over borders, they're trespassing, they're, they're really in some sense offending, you know, some of what we feel to be as, uh, you know, our right to this territory. This group is really going to be emphasizing sovereign rights and saying that there's a right of a nation to protect its border and a right to protect uh, sort of the citizens of a country and to look at issues of the national common good. This group is going to look at cultural rights. They're going to be emphasizing some of the ways in which people come and say, really, uh, how does this affect how we understand ourselves to be as Americans? Uh, obviously, this is a complex issue. We're a nation of laws. We're a country of immigrants. And some people want that. Um, sort of immigrant status to be uh, framed in certain ways. In our history, we've had a Chinese Exclusionary Act. Uh, we had concentration camps where we had the Japanese. 
And we've had times when we've been very critical against the Irish, the Lithuanians, the Germans, the Italians, um, now the Mexicans. Um, Pat Buchanan, maybe in more recent ways, uh, really framed it uh, probably in the most descriptive way, and I'll quote him directly. He says, the problem with immigration today is that they're taking away Native American culture. So, <laughs> so, so Native European culture has really become what has been defined as really traditional American culture, but we know that it's much deeper than that. Um, this group is really gonna be fighting for economic rights, uh, primarily free markets and uh, the movement of goods and services not so much labor, but it is going to be a question of how globalization and migration begin to interface with each other. This group is uh, primarily looking at natural rights and really uh, God-given endowments of human beings uh, and their dignity and uh, really what uh, people should have a license to and uh, what they should be entitled to as human beings, just being made in God's image and likeness. And lastly, and very closely related to this, are issues of human rights, it's much more of a technical, philosophical, secular way of talking about human dignity. Okay, so these are the rights that are at stake in immigration. Um, but as we expand this out a little bit more, these are the political positions. This group is going to look at enforcement, close the borders, uh, keep them out. This is our stuff, not yours. Uh, we need to protect what we have. Um, we're under siege. Um, that uh, if, we don't, if we're not careful, we're going to be speaking Spanish and eating salsa. And, and uh, that uh, this is kind of very much sort of the line in the argument among this group. This group is going to emphasize poorest borders or guest workers. Um, they need the work, we need the workers, let's create a system where people can move back and forth. This group is going to really move more toward issue of legalization, more toward open borders, even though the Catholic Church and Catholic social teaching recognize there is a right to control borders as a state, but it also says that those rights must be exercised only after the needs of distributive justice have been met. So it simply doesn't make any sense to say we're protecting all that we have um, if at the end of the day uh, that what we have is not just ours, but it's God's. And if it's God's, it's also something that must be shared. And so these are issues of the universal destination of all goods, which Catholic social teaching tries to address is saying that, uh, that there is a value in, social, in private property, but that value is not an absolute right. Uh, John Paul II put it this way, that, that property rights are under social mortgage, and that these issues need to be looked at in a kind of much broader, much broader context than others just saying that they're mine and yours are not. Now, if we look at the language of the debate, okay, here's where we see the beginning of another kind of migration. This begins to reveal the deeper values, okay? And so we're gonna to start to shift here a little bit, but, but, I, but I, I wanted to start with language, because language, as we know, shapes the reality, right? Now, the first group really emphasizes that these are aliens, right? Now, this is the official term that we use in the government, right? So uh, this really is um, a, a kind of a very humanizing way of looking at it. I remember a colleague of mine professor married someone from Canada, and he said that when he actually went for interviews for papers with his wife, he said the official started off the interview by saying to his wife, to him, so how long have you known the alien? You know? And so, so it's like, you know, it just struck him, you know. Um, you know, my first book, uh, Border of Death, Valley of Life, I almost called alien spirituality. And uh, I thought maybe Sigourney Weaver, I thought of writing Sigourney Weaver to see maybe she could actually do the introduction of it. 
But, but this, this is kind of just right, right through with just really a dehumanizing stereotypes. But that's the language, right? The same thing now, you know, this is not, you know, as we look at Rwanda, as we look at sort of a million people died in 100 days there, wars between uh, Hutu tribes and Tutsi tribes. And part of it, the Hutu did, you know, really kind of did try to say it. these are just cockroaches, these are not human beings. So this, this dehumanization can really be taken to extremes, as we've seen not, not, not so distant history. This group sees them as workers. And so really it's an economic equation here. Um, really the value of their labor and what's at stake. This group primarily is gonna see them as people. And, and primarily what's gonna be looked at as the human face of the migrant. 90% of what I do is I try to bring out the human face of the migrant. Okay, so that starting point is very different. If these are not human beings, if they can be exploited and manipulated, if they die in the desert two a day, 10,000 over the last decade and a half. That if they simply die and they just cross the borders and they had no documentation, they shouldn't have been here, it's their fault, well, then you win. But if they're human beings, that makes a very different claim on us than these others. And so really, these are, these are kind of deep issues beneath the surface that need to be talked about. Now, um, now lastly, I, I want to just bring out um, sort of the legal philosophies. Now, this is very important here because if this is a question you have today, I can actually just surface it now because when I get pushback kind of statements on this, it's some variant of this one. This is the most common. Father, which part of illegal don't you understand? All right, so that's a very common one I get. And some of it's kind of different levels of aggression. Uh, it, it usually comes at me. And, and so, you know, I mean, I guess my first reaction is like, you know, um, you know which part of the gospel don't you understand? Or, you know, but I, you can't kind of just come out that directly, but it's like, you know, it's the illegal part or the alien part. That's what I don't understand. But, but, uh, but in general, legal philosophies are such that this, and this is really where theology can be of great value, all right? And because Thomas Aquinas, for example, gives us a way of understanding law in much broader categories than just the civil ordinance. Okay, so what do I mean by that? Uh, is that Thomas Aquinas said there are four kinds of laws. There's a natural law. In this case, parents need to feed their families. There's a civil law. Societies need to organize themselves. There's a, a, a divine law that we know through scripture about feeding the hungry and the thirsty and the naked and the sick and the imprisoned and the estranged. And finally, there's an eternal law through a way which God keeps the universe moving. What the goal is, is to bring some sort of harmony between those laws. And that's why Martin Luther King from a Birmingham jail could say that any law, segregation, that is against God's law, you know, needs to be disobeyed in favor of higher laws, you know, in favor of justice. What is, that, what is at stake here is not obeying the law or not obeying the law. It's, it's a false equation to say these people are breaking the law. No, they're actually obeying other laws. And so what we have here is a conflict between natural laws that push people to migrate and civil laws that are built not around letting them in. Right? And as long as those natural laws are going to keep pushing them in the force and underdeveloped poverty, there will, all, you know, there will be uh, sort of no justice in this. Now, this group is going to consistently emphasize the civil laws. Um, and we're a country of laws that we hear. They're breaking the law. All right? This is the equivalent of jaywalking, really. I mean, crossing the border. So, but people want to criminalize them as well. But I would say it's an appeal to the invisible mind. Okay? That's where it says, what are you crazy? They're taking away our, our American culture. This group is going to emphasize the economic laws and, and really with primary emphasis to what Adam Smith called the invisible hand, right? Very different understanding of what Adam Smith had in mind, what we had today. Um, in many ways, we've moved from monotheism to money theism at the heart of our culture. 
Uh, capital has become the primary idol that really is the, 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 the one we worship and incense. And, but you know, in, in this case, we know that that kind of leads us off track. We've seen that sort of in recent years. But this group is going to emphasize the natural laws. And the United Nations actually uses this term of the invisible heart. Uh, a very, very rich theological term as well, saying really our task is about being able to create communities where people can really be in right relationship with each other. That is, the, that is the deepest meaning of the word justice, is being in right relationship. Okay, so, but in the end, um, can we kind of summarize some of this through how we see difference and how we see otherness? And I would say that this is the way I would see it. Um, this group emphasizes fear of the other. This one looks at the equation of the usefulness of the other. This one looks at the connection to the other. All right. So uh, deep soul-searching questions here that are at stake. Um, but as we summarize uh, the second part here, um, what we have is not just a migration across geographical borders. In the end, we have uh, really a conflict at uh, conceptual borders, which is one between sovereign rights and human rights. Um, that is the right of a nation to protect borders but also the right of people to a dignified life and even to migrate if necessary. Catholic social teaching recognizes that right to migrate if necessary. This group, uh, next, is, is a conflict between uh, civil law and natural law. Uh, that is the right of the nation to organize systems of regulations for the common good, but also the right of people to provide for their families, to feed, to educate, and to shelter them. Thirdly, it's a tension between national security and human insecurity. Uh, that is the right of a nation and its inhabitants to protect inhabitants from harm and violence, especially from the outside, but also the right of people to protect their families from undue need, hunger, and excessive poverty and vulnerability. Lastly, it's a tension between citizenship and discipleship. And that is, what does it mean to be a faithful member of the state, but also to recognize that our faith in Christ calls us to a deeper allegiance uh, uh, that really, really uh, is related to the inclusive demand of the gospel. So that's the, the second major part here. And uh, in this third and final part, uh, what, what I want to do is, uh, is really then take migration and then begin to look at this from a spiritual and theological perspective. Now, we, when I was growing up, we lived in New Jersey, we lived in Connecticut, we lived in Ohio. We used to love coming back to visit this group right here. And uh, these were extended trips for five hours or six hours or more. And one time when we were coming out this way, we stopped at a rest area. And when we did, I remember seeing a pamphlet whose title I never forgot. We stopped at the rest area, I picked up this pamphlet, I was a little kid, probably only eight years old, and on it it said, did you know that you can actually miss heaven by 18 inches? And, you know, I guess maybe that was beginning my theological curiosity. And uh, so I opened it up and it said, uh, even though it was kind of written in this evangelical track language, that the heart of it really was, was saying that the distance between the head and the heart in most people is 18 inches. And that God was more than just a concept to understand, but actually a relationship to enter into in the depths of one's being. That migration I've come to see may be the most difficult and challenging migration in human life. And unless we're able to get into that kind of territory, uh, we're never really going to understand the issue of migration. And, and we're never going to understand the walls that we build up in the midst of this. And this is really where the walls and barriers can be really at their highest and longest, is these walls between the head and the heart. So traditionally, really, we've uh, kind of looked at this somehow through uh, the lens of spirituality. And I would say spirituality is about an inner migration. 
And uh, generally speaking, everyone has a spirituality, um, whether they're Catholic or Christian or not. Um, if we define it as saying that spirituality is about living out what we most value. But Christian spirituality is something more specific, and it's much more about living out what Christ most values. And so this is about really adherence to the kingdom of God, uh, that Vatican II describes as a kingdom of truth and life, of holiness and grace, of justice and love and peace. So if we were to look at this metaphorically, <clears throat> discipleship is a form of migration. And that really the task of discipleship is about moving with Christ as a pilgrim people. So Vatican II defined itself, self-definition really was being a pilgrim people. We're moving towards the promised land. We're crossing borders. We're journeying in hope. Uh, we're having to overcome obstacles. But our life as human beings in following Christ, literally following Christ is a form of migration. And so it's one that happens this way and happens this way. And so uh, how do we begin to think about that from a theological perspective? How do we begin to look at lunar migration? Uh, the Native American elders put it this way, that the long journey of human life is the journey between the head and the heart and then back to the head again. Right? And so that's where the openness and the channels of movement, I think, need to be sort of at, their, at, at really their most available and their, their most receptive. But it's often one where we've just cut off and shut down. In relationships, I mean, this is something that we can understand very, very much at the level of our, of our own relationships, uh, not just in the level of how we debate issues. Uh, so this is something that's at the core of our being, uh, our level of openness. We can get hurt, we can get wounded, we can shut down, we can close out, uh, we can play it safe, um, and, and we can decide not to migrate. We can, the Aztec said that the heart is a physical organ with a mystical quality. It's always searching, it's always moving. Um, but if we put too many walls around it, we die. Uh, if we shut down, um, we lose our humanity. And this is a very, very important dimension and often an unspoken dimension in the immigration debate. When I was in Malta working in some refugee camps, I remember asking a, a Muslim, really, what's the hardest part about being a migrant and in this place? And he said, for me, I have no place to pray. Right? This is something that escapes and eludes a lot of social scientists because beyond what is the observable, the quantifiable, the empirical, there are these deep narratives uh, that I think need reflection. And, and that can only be accessed through theology, I think. Okay, um, you know, this last part I want to frame in light of one story that happened to me. It was working between the borders of, of Morocco and Spain. Right? So the equivalent of our American, South American, or, or deserts in the Southwest um, is this area along the Gibraltar Straits. These are the people are streaming up through this area. People are dying in great numbers there. They're, they're getting eaten by sharks. Even, some of them even have their eyes teared out. They, they drown. Uh, kind of there are many, many narratives about people coming through. But, uh, but I, I uh, you can remember this area. So you can see that right there, in the southern part of Spain, northern part of Africa, right where Europe meets Africa, the Gibraltar Straits, about 10 miles across, Rock of Gibraltar, Prudential, all of that. Um, you've got sort of the Atlantic meeting the, uh, the Mediterranean, that this is really the fulcrum of really where a lot of the European migration is happening. On the southern part of, on the other side of Spain, or excuse me, on the other side of where Spain is, uh, on the African coast in Morocco, there is uh, two small Spanish colonies. Actually, there are Spanish colonies on the African coast in Morocco. One is called Ceuta, the other is called Melilla. And these are the target points for a lot of refugees coming up through that area. If you can get into those areas, and you know, then you can seek asylum so you don't have to swim across those waters and go into those dangerous territories. 
And when I was there, I actually met three refugees. One was coming up out of Uganda, one was coming up out of Sudan, one was coming up out of Somalia. They had taken eight months to eight years to get to that spot. Um, one had migrated across the Sahara Desert and his sister died in his arms, spitting up blood because of the extremity of the conditions. Others had hit up in the mountains. Others had undergone serious human rights violations. They'd begged, they'd borrowed, they'd eaten dogs, they'd gone a whole year, taken one shower. Um, they'd gone through all kinds of extreme conditions at the end of this, and they shared with me their stories for three days. But at the end of this three days, uh, they looked at me, and they said, uh, so what do you do? And I, uh, I said, uh, well, you know, they knew I was a priest, and, uh, but I said, actually, uh, they said, do you work in a parish? I said, I, somewhat, but I said, actually, I actually spend a lot of my time teaching research and stuff. I said, well, what do you teach in research? And I said, you know, well, uh, I, um, I'm working on uh, theology and migration. Now, I'm going to tell you that I spent my whole year in Oxford trying to talk to scholars about this issue, trying to make some connections, but this was really my final exam. I mean, this was really my final exam. I tried to take the cumulative experiences of the stories of migrants that I heard and say, what does theology say to them? But they were the ultimate judges who could say, that's just scholarly gibberish, or that's something that really speaks to my life. And I didn't know which one it would be. And I actually felt quite nervous about putting it out there. But I knew that I had to go through this. So the three of them looked at me and said, well, what is theology migration about? One guy said, Emmanuel was his name. He said, well, he said, uh, theology of migration, he says, some people say that the reason why we're suffering so much is because we're descendants of Judas. And because of what Judas did to Jesus, we're paying the consequences. He said, what do you think about that? Right? That was a statement about theology of migration. And he says, well, here's another way of looking at it. I said, here's another way of looking at it. Um, I said, if you listen to nothing else in my talk tonight, this is the only thing they really want you to hear. Okay. It's the only thing they want you to hear. He said, here's another way of looking at it. God in Jesus Christ so loved the world that he migrated from his homeland to the far and distant territory of our sinful and broken existence. And there he laid down his life on a cross so that we could be reconciled to him and migrate back to our homeland of God. And so what we see God doing in Jesus is overcoming all those borders and barriers that we erect inside and outside ourselves that destroy our relationships. And we see love being so boundless that it can't be limited by the walls that we put ourselves in and that we create for other people. And I said there's four ways in which this has happened. There's four dimensions of the foundation of this. The first is really the imago Dei or the image of God. You see this in the beginning of Scripture. Um, we see this, that we know that human beings are created in the image and likeness of God. Uh, what does that mean? That means that this is a truth that cannot be undone. It cannot be deconstructed. It is sort of a bedrock reality of our lives that no one can take away from us. And it's really about crossing over the problem-person divide or the inhuman-human divide. All right? And so... When I ask migrants the borders, and I say, what's the most difficult part of the journey for you? All right, now, I look at what they go through, and I say, it's got to be the journey itself. You know? But one migrant said to me from Mexico, he says, look, I've stood away on the baggage compartments of buses. He says, you know, I've gone through mountains and almost frozen to death. He says, I've traversed deserts and almost baked to death. He says, I've almost suffocated, I've gone hungry and thirsty and the rest. He says, that's not the worst part about being a migrant. 
He said, the worst part about being a migrant is when people treat you like you're a dog. Like you're the lowest form of life on earth. They said, like you're no one to anyone. That's the hardest part about being a migrant. And I would venture to say that if we actually just paid attention to the deepest wounds in our life, the places where we've been most hurt and offended, it would be in some way connected to some violence against that inner worth that we have. And, and something, when that happens, something protests and says, our God-given dignity just rebels against that. And that's what migrants often say. Another group coming across the Arizona desert said, you know, we traveled three days, 40 pounds of water on our backs. And they said, you know, we were tired and hungry and we were just weary. And then in the middle of the night, these Border Patrol helicopters came and circled us. And they said they had a right to do their job. They had a right to arrest us. But what really hurt was when they started playing the song about cucaracha over the loudspeakers. They said, all we're trying to do is feed our families. And they're treating us like we're just the lowest form of life on earth. You know? So this first thing that theology is constantly trying to bring up is the human dimensions of this. And going from being just a label and a category uh, to being a human being, you know? Because they're not just political answers. They're not just political solutions to this. Yes, that's an important issue, but deep down, it's, it's a search for life, for dignity. That's the first one. Um, if you permit me, I, I only have a few more moments in this, but if you just indulge me just a few moments, I wanted to show you about a two-minute clip of a video that we did uh, called Dying to Live, which gives a little bit of the contours of this journey. For some migrants, the road north starts deep in Central America. Their first destination is the southern border of Mexico. From there, they make their way up to one of the towns near the border with the United States. These small towns have become staging areas for migrants. They prepare for their trek into the U.S. to link up with either family members or employers. The journey is dangerous. Bandits, loan sharks, and corrupt police prey on them. And then, there are the physical dangers. Many migrants travel north by freight trains. And when they jump on trains, sometimes they'll stow away in a boxcar. Sometimes they'll hide themselves in between the train cars. It's very dangerous for 15, 16, 17 hours at a time just holding on to a train, holding on to their dear life. A lot of immigrants sometimes, just because of sheer exhaustion, sometimes fall off the train. They lose a foot, they lose a leg, they lose an arm. A lot of them will fall off and inevitably die. In an award-winning photo series, L.A. Times photographer Don Bartley rode the rails north through Mexico with the migrants. He photographed moments of fear, joy, adventure, and compassion. In Veracruz, there are people who live on the trackside who throw food at the migrants riding the top of the train train. There was one small little uh, mom-and-pop grocery store next to the tracks in Orizaba where a, a teenage boy had taken the leftover fruit from the market. And I thought uh, uh, that this boy was going to toss the oranges and they would catch them on the baseball. But at the last second, he lunged towards the freight car with these guys and their arms hanging out. And through my viewfinder, all I saw was the blurred motion of the train going by. I didn't see the most magic picture of my trip. Two hands touching, migrants and their gift givers. Just a brief, brief rush, as if they were each communicating without words, saying, 
please go with God, go with peace, go with love. And the migrants on the northbound freight train saying thank you for this gift of peace. The life of the migrant is a lonely experience. Will I fall off the train? Will I be robbed or swindled? What will happen at the border? These are just a few of the questions these men think about. There, there's one very special thing that series bound to all of it, It's a picture of Santo Antonio Valle holding on to the sides on the end of a rail car. I was laying on top of the adjoining boxcar, looking straight down. I took one picture, and then he opened his mouth. The emotion came directly through the camera, into my heart, into my soul. And Santo told me, I'm going to Canada. You want to have a job as a, as a painter? And I said, well, what were you thinking when you were holding on to the train car? And I was yelling at him because it's still noisy. He says, I was praying for my sake. Let me pass this time. This image here really is emblematic of a lot of the work we're doing. And what I find so powerful about this uh, really is descriptively uh, really uh, captured by Ignacio de Correa, an El Salvador judge who was killed, who said that the sign of the times uh, from which we need to read every other sign is the sign of the crucified peoples of today. And so the question is, who are those who are being crucified because of unjust structures, because of economic conditions? Who are the most vulnerable people in our midst? And how are they also connected to the redemption of, of a nation? And so I think this picture really describes, ironically, uh, uh, sort of those who are suffering the most, but also those who hold the key to the nation's redemption. And uh, so there's a, there's a lot here, but I think I, I can only begin to kind of mention some of these themes. But if the first sort of uh, foundation of theology of migration is crossing over this inhuman-human divide, um, the second one of the four here is really about the Bourbon Day or crossing over the divine human divide. Uh, this is what we see God doing in Jesus Christ. Uh, so loving the world that love cannot be contained or boxed in. Uh, that's the one thing that we know as Cardinal Cooks mentioned before at MT as well, uh, that unmerited, gratuitous love of God going across the borders of even reasonableness. Uh, and in Matthew's Gospel, uh, Jesus enters the world of its drama documentation. And in short order, he's thrust into the desperate of his family because of uh, the, the policies of a crazed king, and his family become political refugees. And so these are often ways in which migrants see their own story mirrored back to them. Um, but also, you know, we see that God not only became a migrant by becoming human, but also entered into the lowest form of being human by even going into that kind of vulnerability. Um, but in the end of the day, it's about God's endless, boundless love uh, crossing over even the barriers and walls that we erect because of sin. Paul says that when Jesus died and rose from the dead, he broke down that wall of enmity that really put uh, sort of a distance between us and God, that blocked off that, that relationship. Um, but God's love is so great that it overcame that border in the incarnation and Jesus' death and resurrection. The third foundation is the Missio Dei, or the mission of God, which is about crossing over the human-human divide. And so what we see going on uh, here is, is somehow, though, as human beings, we create all kinds of borders that make us feel safe. Between black and white, between rich and poor, between sort of um, the privileged and the excluded. 
and between those who belong and those who don't, between citizens and aliens. Uh, there are many ways that we create these. We have throughout time. Um, but the mission of the church is really about following the mission of Jesus. And the mission of Jesus was about proclaiming the kingdom of God. That kingdom, uh, as we mentioned, is a kingdom of gratuitous love that invited everybody to the table. The table is the great symbol of the kingdom of God. And, and so this is really what we see Jesus is doing, is that that boundless love welcomes everybody and rejects no one. But what we see happening in the Gospels is that there are some people who are at that table who felt that others shouldn't be there. The tax collector, the sinner, the Gentile, the foreigner, the, that somehow that they didn't fit the prescriptions of the law that they thought were necessary in order for them to be at table. A friend of mine, Virgil Alessandro, who we were talking about earlier, he has a great way of summarizing this. He says that Jesus, in proclaiming the kingdom of God and inviting everybody to the table, rejects rejection. But in rejecting rejection, he himself is rejected. So he sums it up by saying the reject who rejects rejection, however, is the one who rises from the dead, which vindicates Jesus' way as God's way. The mission of the church, then, is to break down those walls and barriers, you know, which we create as human beings, to realize this universal fellowship. But that's the task at the heart of the mission of the church. That's where the task of justice and peace lies for us um, as a church community, as an ecclesial body. So the implication to that is that, in the end, that it requires a vision of God, a visio dei, uh, that is about crossing over the country kingdom divide. And what does that mean? All right, let's just summarize it this way. If my vision of life and of God is, this is my stuff, I earned it, I worked hard for it, it belongs to me, don't touch it. That's a vision of life, coming out of a vision of God. If we understand God to be a community of persons that so share and love and receive and give that they become one, then that has implications for how we live as human beings. Then it's no longer just, then it becomes more, everything belongs to God. In the end of the day, I will die. When I die, I will have to give this up. So really, uh, what I'm called to do is not to be an owner of anything, but, but in the end, to, to really be a steward of this. Um, that's a different way of living in the world. That's based on a different vision of life. That's based on the vision of God that comes into it. So yes, it matters that I'm American or I'm Mexican or whatever else it may be. But in the end, those are not my ultimate grounds of identity, that my identity is much deeper than that because it calls me to be a citizen of the kingdom of God. And when that happens, it calls me to actually go across borders to transcend differences and to see our interconnectedness to each other. That's a different kind of migration. But we can be so trapped and attached and stuck on the homeland of our own agendas and own needs and own wounds and hurts and needs and even selfishness that moving out of that territory can be the most difficult challenge of life. So, in conclusion, if uh, we were to sum this up, um, really it's about, at the end of the day, the imitation of God, which is crossing over the life-death divide and saying that there are choices to make and that if we fail to respond to the vulnerable stranger in need, then that not only dehumanizes the other person, but that makes us less human at the same time. That we become less of who we're called to be. We become less of the creation that God has ordained from the beginning that somehow we become less whole, we become less connected, we become less related. Uh, so, so if we were to kind of just put these in final terms, like then the true alien then is not someone who doesn't have papers. 
But the true, if we are to use the term alien in any way, it refers to those who are disconnected from God, the stranger in need, and even from oneself, um, that they, they really can't see that the immigrant really is uh, a mirror of the human journey and a reflection of Christ. As we know from Matthew's Gospel, hungry, thirsty, naked, sick, estranged, in prison, what you did to the least, you did to me. The immigrants coming out of Mexico, hungry in their homelands, thirsty in the desert, naked after being robbed at gunpoint, down to their clothing, sick after having to drink even their own urine in order to survive, imprisoned in detention centers, and often if they get here, excluded and unwelcome. So how is Christ present in a way that may not be immediately obvious, but no less real? as we really see this situation with different eyes. And finally, it's a challenge to human solidarity. Uh, there's a powerful mass each year down at the border where half the mass is, uh, half the, uh, it's, I don't tell you El Paso, but half the communities in Mexico, half the communities in the United States, they actually join the altar together at the fence, and then bishops from both sides, the community gathers together to celebrate one Eucharist in the midst of this divided political reality. That is the eschatological promise that we are one body in Christ, even amidst this fractious, sort of situation we find ourselves in. So, to conclude the story and the presentation here, uh, I, I actually shared some of these insights with Emmanuel and his friends coming from Sudan and Somalia, Uganda, and I put it out there, right? So, I let it be out there. I, you know, took a deep breath and wasn't quite sure, you know, really how he'd respond. And, uh, but it was actually probably the most moving moment for me as a theologian ever. Because I realized that at the end of this thing, he didn't, Emmanuel was a spokesperson, and he didn't say to me, hey, those are really good insights. I hope you uh, get that published in an article somewhere, a peer-reviewed journal. Uh, this actually wasn't what he said. He actually didn't look at me at all. He actually looked up to heaven and he raised his hands up loud voice, he just screamed, and he goes, Yay, God! He said, I can't believe that God would do that for me. And then it all became clear that all I'm talking about here is what Jesus talks about in the fourth chapter of the Gospel of Luke, when he says, I have come to proclaim good news to the poor, liberty to captives, sight to the blind, and a year of favor that ministry is at the heart of the God who migrated to us so in turn we can migrate with God to the kingdom of heaven. So, so thank you for coming tonight. I hope we have a little bit of time for questions, if that's okay. Um, Barbara, are we all right? Yes. yes. So maybe we could open up the floor a little bit. Uh, how do you, I mean, I think the first is to try to understand the position of another. Uh, 
I, I, and that, that's sometimes very hard. I mean, walking to the vigilante groups, walking into their office, trying to understand their positions was not always easy. And, and I must say that it took a while to kind of distill out some of the positions. But I, but I kind of wonder, like sometimes we have to kind of x-ray people a bit and go to the deeper levels and say, what is it that you're really afraid of? You know, is it that we're losing something and if I lose this, I'm not gonna be anybody? You know, maybe that kind of vulnerability is really at the heart of who we are. And we're all dealing with that in some form or another. We just build more sophisticated walls. Um, academics are really professional about doing this. We build all kinds of sophisticated walls to keep from sharing what are kind of deep human vulnerabilities. You know, and I don't think we have a monopoly on that, but, but I think that all human beings, I think, have a way of, of, of maybe not revealing the deeper self and risking the truths that are there in our lives. And so, so I think sometimes, you know, that's the question I ask. There's some people who are just simply closed and they're saying that I'm not going to migrate, I'm going to stay stuck in my homeland, and no one's going to move me from there. I mean, those people, there's just simply no other conversation to have. But if people are just there to prove that you're wrong, I meet plenty of those people. Um, that's sort of one way of looking at it. But if we can risk vulnerability, we can probably get to deeper levels of understanding and find that we all share a common vulnerability. And maybe that's something that we need to reflect on more. But it does require maybe a listening to the heart in a deeper level rather than just the ideas. And that's why really what's needed here is not just more information. What's needed here is a new imagination. And, and I think that unless we get that, we're going to just stay stuck in this binary, right, wrong, good, bad, citizen, alien, you know, legal, illegal, and, and it's just simply going to be over ideas. But if we're able to risk maybe revealing the deeper truths of the heart, which I think spirituality can put us in touch with, maybe we can move somewhere. secret. That's a very disturbing reality that it is such a secret, you know, because a lot of people that I'm actually talking with are Catholics too. So it, it's, uh, it, it is a question of the ongoing work of evangelization that needs to be done in terms of conforming and helping people understand the social dimensions of the gospel message. And so that's true. I mean, I think that's really a given. I think there's always a need for more education, more illumination. But I would say our, our bishops have been quite good on this point. Maybe the question is how do we get that message out to more people? Um, the great temptation that we always face is we read the gospel message through only the American lens. Um, I mean, we can't help that on one level because this is the culture that we live in. But we always must allow ourselves to be challenged by looking at it in a deeper way because, you know, Jesus isn't just the great capitalist patriot that's simply confirming what, what we're doing. It, it should sort of kind of call us to really look at things in, in, in sort of uh, much deeper dimensions and to challenge us. I mean, I, I remember sometimes somebody sent me a, a, uh, a picture once of the American flag that had this refraction of the sun in the background that was in the form of a cross. Well, that kind of civil religion um, doesn't go very deep. 
And I think we have to move beyond sort of very superficial notions of the gospel to ask not just what's good for us as Americans, but what's good for the common good internationally. And, and I think that that's sort of a task of preaching that isn't just also about what we're doing publicly on Sunday, but it's also about how we're living our lives throughout the rest of the week and how we're engaged in various ministries uh, that also need to carry that message. So it's more than just in the domain of what priests are doing from the pulpit, but really what the whole church is doing to help carry that message. Yes. Migrant is a mirror of what it means to be human before God. So we as human beings are migrants in this world. And, and so the one we see externally and socially politically defined is also the one that we are sort of as, as, as pilgrim people moving through this world. Okay, what I was thinking was is that the migrant shows us to ourselves. I think I was thinking yeah. about John Serena, who we are, who we actually are. I think that's true. That's the great thing about being able to speak here is you can hear things I never intended to say, but are even more true. So, <laughs> so I think that's, that's right. I think the migrant does reveal who we are. I think that's, that's well said. I don't, I don't wanna make it clear, there's not a role that you have to sit in the first row to say something. And I just, I, you know, one reason, at least for myself, why I'm uncharacteristically quiet, maybe it's true for others, I've never heard anything like this. And I haven't read much of your work, but it's just such a gift, I guess, to take, um, rather than sort of look just what does our faith teach us as a sort of, um, we should do what we're taught, but to invite this roadmap into our own uh, grumblings about what we hear on the radio, our, our co-workers that might not agree, just to invite us into thinking about that as a point, point, a point of spirituality, it just feels like a brand new thing to me. Yeah. I, I just want to thank you thank for that, because you connected things that are often left. So there's these political social issues, and then there's this religion stuff over here. Yeah. Um, I, I once had to give a little talk when I was teaching comparative religion in a comparative um, uh, theories of personality it was taught. And what is a Buddhist theory of personality? And I said, well, that's going to be really short. If you've got a personality, get over it. You know. Anyway, for Buddhism. But we talked about it in sort of experiential ways and poured salt in the water and watched it disappear. And at the end, one of the students said, well, that sounds like a really cool religion. The one I grew up with is only rules. And three guesses were her And as far as she could tell, her, her religion was about rules, mostly negative ones, yeah. what not to do. So, um, anyway. Yeah, and, and this might be a, a chance to even say something on this as well, because, you know, uh, faith and development has to be a constant movement and development. It has to be a constant migration. And there's a time when the rules are formed, there's a time when the document is communicated, but at some time, 
we have to migrate into the very open vulnerability of, of who we are uh, as human beings before God and our unworthiness of God. And uh, the risk of, uh, of being who we are uh, deep down. And I think it's then we make our deepest discoveries about um, the gratuity of God. If it's just about earning our way to God, if it's just about sort of fire insurance policies, going to church on Sunday, um, if it's just about going through the motions so that we can be acceptable to God, we will never migrate into the kingdom of God. We will never find it. Um, I think that it's only when we get to the utter unacceptability and sinfulness and brokenness of our existence and then bring that before God and we risk the openness of that kind of territory that we finally become liberated into the journey of faith as a spiritual path, uh, not uh, uh, some sort of disguised form of, of kind of ensuring our salvation by our own efforts. Um, and that, that's, a, that's a point of energy reflection. And, and I think um, sometimes people short circuit too early um, for various reasons, maybe because they just shut down a religion and say there's nothing there because I was burned or something happened. Uh, it's not enough. If we fall down the journey or even if we had a, a imperfect companions or teachers, um, the task, the heart's always going to keep moving, and the heart's always going to be seeking a greater horizon. And, uh, and I think that's going to move us out into the space that's going to get in touch with, uh, with what's not right about our lives, but also get us in touch with what is right about Jesus and, and the depths of our being and what that means to us. Very helpful thing you had to say. Well, I think what you've shared with us tonight has been remarkable and a wonderful end to the day in terms of our own inner migrations as well as trying to understand our connectedness to the rest of the world since we're here in all one place. So thank you. So, a wonderful so thank you for migrating tonight.